I think one thing that is changing or has changed is that Google has devalued links because they realize that the old players have an inherent advantage. They have a lot more links. So you're never going to be able to overcome that without a huge budget. So I think that local brand mentions, you know, being present in local search, you know, they're, they're focusing a lot more on these hyper local types of things to provide results for you, whether it's in SGE or in, you know, regular SERPs and especially in the local map pack. So I think you have a chance. Hi, and welcome to the Optimize Podcast. My name is Nate Matherson, and I'm your host. On this weekly podcast, we sit down with some of the smartest minds in content marketing and SEO. Our goal is to give you perspective and insights on what's moving the needle in organic search. Today, I'm thrilled to sit down with Mika Lepisto. Mika started his career in digital marketing and SEO in the mid-1990s, and for the last 20 years, he has worked as a digital marketing consultant with a focus on organic search and revenue generation. Mika has worked with clients in B2C, B2B, B2G, and in the public sector in industries including travel, automotive, food, and aerospace. Mika has a fantastic perspective on how digital marketing and organic search has changed and may change. In our episode today, Mika and I talk about the recent algorithm updates, search in the late 1990s, the changing SEO landscape, and specifically about creating digital and search channels in the competitive travel space. And this episode of the Optimize Podcast is brought to you by Positional. If you don't know by now, my name's Nate and I'm one of the co-founders of Positional. And I'm really excited to announce that we just launched our content analytics tool set. This has very quickly become my favorite feature. It's one that I've wanted for the last 10 years. And it's really effective in identifying which pages on your site users might be having a low quality experience on. What we do is we track metrics like scroll depth, bounce rate, and time on page to score your pages and then allow you to go deeper to see where within a piece of content for example, which paragraph is causing people to leave or where, for example, you might want to add a call to action within that page. This tool set is called Content Analytics. It's our newest feature. I'm stoked about it and you should be too. Mika, thank you so much for coming on the Optimize podcast. Hey, Nate. Honored to be here. I have to say from listening to your previous episodes, you're kind of like Sean Evans from Hot Ones on YouTube with your deep dives into uh, LinkedIn history and stuff like that. And then the lightning round, which I'm going to dub the last dab at the moment here. So I'm a little nervous about what you might find, but uh, hopefully it's not as bad as some 500 million Scoville pepper sauce. You know, maybe next year we'll do a hot one series because I love hot sauce. Actually, the hotter, the better. Fun fact about me, like I love the hottest hot sauce you can find. Maybe we'll ask about that in the lightning round. But the first question I have for you is how did you get into the world of content marketing and SEO? Yeah, so the way that I got in it really was an SEO. Like nobody understood what that was at that time. So Mid-90s, I was a Unix and Mac systems admin for a print agency, and I kind of fell into building sites by being, quote, the computer guy, right? I also built some sites for myself for fun. Uh, took a few years that I learned how to monetize them. And back at the direct marketing agency, we were producing print mail order catalogs. So we started building 
sites for clients, which were brochure sites, e-commerce and such, starting around 1995. And that landscape was very different because you had to like mail a check or you had to call to place your order. You know, there was no placing it online and people actually would like mail checks because they thought it was fun. You know, the internet was kind of new and novel back then. There was an aspect of search. It was Yahoo directory and you basically, you know, chose your categories that you'd be in and then someone would search the directory. And then AOL had what they called keywords. And I don't know if that's where the term keywords came from, but they'd have like a thing, you know, on a commercial and they'd say, you know, for positional type in the positional keyword uh, on AOL. So that's kind of what the playing field was back then. It seemed to me that like around mid 2000s, um, shortly after Google launched, you know, then people didn't really understand how to optimize. But there became roles at companies where somebody was focusing on search but it usually wasn't a dedicated role. It was somebody, you know, like me who was a computer guy, but was also doing something else. Didn't really start to do too much SEO for other people until mid 2000s. Uh, I'd just been kind of focusing on making money off websites of my own because I, you know, it kind of turned a hobby into something that was, I thought, wow, I can make money doing this. And it was kind of uh, mind blowing at that time for me. I think back then, you know, it was a lot easier because there was obviously a lot less competition. Google had PageRank, which would give you a super like easy metric to understand like how powerful your website was. And that's changed, of course. So in around 2005, I was working contract for a company and they had somebody, again, who was kind of like a head of technology, but also the SEO. And I was learning by proximity I was leading a team of content creators, designers, developers. So by today's standards, I would be, you know, product management or revenue. And he would be like the CTO, but also with SEO responsibilities. And it was a smaller company, so maybe there's some differences back then. So it seems to me that like right around 05 or 04, that's when some of the people that are currently in SEO kind of got their start and search really started becoming something that people would optimize. I have a few immediate questions. In the early to mid 2000s, was SEO just easier? Was it like a matter of just building backlinks, increasing page rank and forcefully inserting keywords into your page? And I wasn't doing SEO back then, but I kind of imagine that's what it was like. Is that accurate at all? Yeah, it could be very accurate to describe it like that, especially like in the early 2000s. People were trying to reverse engineer the algorithm and it was much more an algorithm then. So PageRank was essentially, you could have a little extension in your browser that would show you the page rank of a given page and it was like uh, one to 10. So when you're looking at PageRank, the number was influenced by the number of links that you got. And it was kind of like each link was a vote for you. So then it was pretty easy to manipulate that, I think. And a lot of people did that. The company that I worked for, we had 70 websites that I ran under one division, if you will, and two like more powerful websites. And so linking between those, we essentially had like a PBN or private blog network. And it wasn't that we were trying to do that. It's just that that existed, right? That was the, the business model. But there were a lot of people, I think that's where like that whole PBN thing came from, like just develop a whole bunch of websites linked to each other. Google had no way to understand, or at least it, it didn't seem like Google had a way to understand you're linking to yourself, right? 
And for all our listeners, PBN stands for Private Blog Network. And back in the early 2000s, were there Google penalties? Like, was that not a thing yet? Yeah, actually, there were. Uh, you wouldn't see things in Search Console like a, a manual action. The first thing was there's a sandbox. So if you did too many changes to your website all at once, Google would kind of step back and say, you know, what's going on? Let's see what's going to happen. You could get, quote, sandboxed. You didn't know necessarily when you would get out of that. Other penalties, yeah, like search spam. I think that there was methods that Google could detect that. And we had uh, one domain that fit into the, the brand that we were doing with this company that had like 70 travel uh, websites around destinations and travel topics. One of those domains that we acquired, we could not figure out. It would not rank. Like we took, I don't know, probably three, four, five months just trying to get it to rank. And we ultimately decided it had some type of a penalty and it just wouldn't overcome that. So there's definitely those types of things. Uh, but I think that they were less understood then. At that time, was everyone optimizing for just Google or were there other search engines that were also important that, that you would optimize for? So Yahoo, I can't remember if they um, syndicated from Microsoft, but yeah, obviously there was a shift from Yahoo directory to Google and they gained market share very rapidly, but there was also, you know, AOL had their search. A lot of people were still on AOL. Dial-up was still a thing, right? So all these different ISPs that people would use to connect, you know, you'd have a different source. If you came through AOL, you really weren't on the internet. You were in AOL, and then they had their version of the internet within that. I can't remember exactly what year that ended. And then they became kind of like... Um, you know, how Yahoo is nowadays is kind of a portal page and then provided just mail services. And they did provide internet access, which is di a little different from Yahoo. I've heard SEOs joke that back then, like the key was getting a link in the Yahoo directory, which I think you could have paid for. Was, was that actually like a thing and something important in search? Th that was like the thing. So, and yeah, you had to pay. I think pretty much every category. Uh, maybe there might've been some free ones, you know, I'm stretching my memory here, like 30 some years. So, uh, but yeah, it was paid to be in the category. You could pay to be in multiple categories. I forget what the cost was, but it was a couple hundred. It might've varied by category. And so you would still search the directory. So there was a search component, but when you searched for shoes, like anything that was in the shoes category essentially started to come up. It wasn't what was on your site. When did what was on your site start to matter? Like when did that shift in search change? When did Google's algorithms get more intelligent? So that was kind of Google's value proposition immediately. 1998, I think is when Google launched, uh, late 98. And the minute that happened, that's where that shift came because they just had a different approach, right? So instead of being a directory, they said, let's go out and crawl all these websites see what the content is and put it into a database and then essentially perform a search query against that database and show you the results. So that's just a very simplification of how it was versus, you know, looking at the categories that existed in Yahoo directory. And these days in search results, you see niche websites, you see affiliate websites, you see 
large publishers like Forbes going after keywords like best personal loans. Um, and of course you see brands. So there are many different types of websites that rank these days. Back then, were there that many types of websites or were there less websites in general? Like who was ranking for most keywords? Boy, I don't remember who was ranking for them. That's a, that'd be an interesting thing to look up. There definitely were a lot less websites and the barrier to entry was higher for individuals. So not sure when it shifted, but like kind of mid nineties to get a domain name. It was only network solutions, I think. And they were charging something like $400 a year for a domain name. So grabbing a domain name for an average person, you're thinking 30 years ago, $400, which is now still equivalent to like a, you know, a decent car payment. So, you know, the normal people weren't just building websites. And the barrier to entry now is so much lower. It's what is it, 995 or something in Namecheap. And then you can get hosting for another three bucks. So for, you know, $20 a year, you can essentially start your own website and compete with anybody that you want to. So that component, I think, really changed, you know, how much more there is on the internet now, along with the ease of publishing. Back then, there were some tools, but, you know, they were pretty kind of techie tools and to create the HTML code. So I was coding it by hand in the beginning. And then there were some other tools that came out like Dreamweaver to assist you with that coding, just like there's, you know, tools now that uh, help developers code. Now, people don't even need that. You just download WordPress, you know, install a theme that you like, and you're off and running. I mean five minutes, something like that. Dreamweaver. I wonder what happened to Dreamweaver. Is it still a product? I think Dreamweaver got absorbed by Adobe. I'd have like, man, I, <laughs> you're sending me back in like nostalgia land, right? So, and I'm trying to remember that, but Dreamweaver was, if I remember correctly, there was a suite of tools that they started adding to that. And then I think that became part of Adobe Creative Suite which we know it as now, but Photoshop was kind of like a standalone. Illustrator was standalone. And then I want to say Dreamweaver got absorbed into that, but don't quote me on it. I have two final questions about the early 2000s. Was buying backlinks like a big thing in like 2002? So here's a, a thing about, you say backlinks and everybody talks about backlinks and one kind of just funky nuances. We just called them links there was no differentiation of what type of link it was because it was basically a given that, you know, it was a link to your site. Were people buying that? I was not buying links at that time. Another thing that was kind of hard to gauge then what other people were doing because there weren't as many people doing it and there weren't as many resources to collaborate or to talk to people. There were some forums and things like that. I do think that there were a lot of people doing that. There were link exchange programs. So, you know, and which go against Google guidelines. And there are also these, I forget what they call them, but it was like this random link banner type of thing that you'd have on the bottom of you join this thing and your site would show up in this link banner and other people's sites, you know, you just kind of trade it and it would randomly rotate. So it was a way for other people to discover your site by looking at some usually completely unrelated website, but everybody was really interested because 
you know, the internet was novel at that time. I kid you not. I saw one of these like old school link exchange programs the other day. I bought a belt. It was like a $20 belt from like, you know, best USA belts.org or some website. It looked like it was from like the, the early 2000s. And I actually purchased it because I had bought a belt from them like 10 years ago. And finally, the belt finally wore out. So I went back to their site, bought another belt and I went to their footer and they had like a link exchange program, which was something that like I've not seen in a long, long time. So there's still some legacy sites out there maybe doing that. Last question on the early 2000s. Like, how long did it take to rank? Imagine I started a new website today. I paid 400 bucks for the domain name. I paid Yahoo 300 bucks to get in the directory. I joined 40 link exchange programs and I stuffed a lot of keywords into my pages. Would I then like start ranking fairly quickly or did it take a while for search algorithms to like discover my site and then start to rank it? The sandbox thing was kind of understood and I don't remember exactly what years that spanned. So maybe it would take two to three months to get out of the sandbox, if you will. I think also it depended on you know what you were trying to rank for and obviously the competition and things like that. So those are still factors, but page rank was a big thing. If you could accelerate getting your page rank higher, then you could rank faster. We're going to transition to today. And there's been a lot of algorithm updates lately. It feels like search is as volatile as I've seen it. What do you make of like all of the recent algorithm updates? Is there anything we can be doing to keep up into 2024? So yeah, there's been a lot of stuff happening lately. Uh, one thing that's kind of interesting is seeing the algo updates, like the helpful content one. And then that being changed twice within what, about two months. And now forums are ranking and a lot of even older forums that just haven't been updated. So it's interesting to see that. And I think that it's just a refinement of what Google has been trying to say for a long time, which is make your content useful. And, you know, maybe they haven't always been great at determining that programmatically. And what people have been trying to do is always reverse engineer this to see what works, what doesn't. You know, people are still doing that. That's what these tools that are around now, which didn't exist back then, those provide, you know, insight into that. So, I mean, I, I think that it's just going to continually get more complicated. This segues probably into SG and, you know, all these other areas of search. So I don't know if you want to talk about that. But well, no, I have to ask two part question there. What do you make of it? And do you think Google is going to roll it out anytime soon? Yeah. So that was really interesting as a conversation at Brighton SEO. There were some people that are like, absolutely not. They're just not going to do it. My thoughts around this is that everybody I've spoken to that isn't in tech that I've shown this or less techie people, right? Just ordinary Google searchers don't really like that concept. So will they roll that out? I think at some point, will it look like it does now? Uh, nobody can really tell. I don't think so because it takes up so much of your pixel space. And that kind of goes against Google themselves. You know, they make money from what's at the top. So I don't see it rolling out the way it is now. I, I think that perhaps we can see AI getting refined and maybe that being on the back end of the algorithm, providing a lot more detailed and a lot more personalized results, making it much more difficult to understand 
you know, or track position, right? So you might be in a position uh, one for something in, you know, let's say shoes in a certain location for a certain person, but for somebody else, you're not, you know, if they're understanding like how these people are browsing and they're delivering highly personalized results, then I think that that's really where AI is going and not just in search, but basically across marketing. I think that's really where AI is going to shine. That's kind of where I would put my focus anyway. Yeah. You and I were at Brighton in San Diego together. Um, and I thought one of the most interesting talks was by Danny Sullivan um, from Google search team. And I, I thought it was really interesting that he reiterated that SGE was an experiment and that there was not a clear timeline for rollout. But when you talk to some SEOs, they have very passionate timelines for rollout. I tend to fall into the camp of Google does not want to roll this out. And it was maybe a, a gut reaction to everything that had happened with, with OpenAI and ChatGPT. And they still themselves are very hesitant. But it'll be uh, interesting to see if, if some of the predictions that it's coming in January actually come true. I do know they just rolled it out to like another 120 countries or, or something like that pretty recently. I want to take a step back, though, to your first response on algorithm updates. You mentioned that you need to be creating useful content. What does it mean to create useful content? My perspective on useful content is it really has to, like Mike Haney said on one of your previous episodes, is like you're adding value to the internet. So that value could just be a perspective and it could be your experience. You know, we could talk about EEAT there, but I think you just really have to look at your content super critically. Would I read this? Is it adding value to me? And put yourself in the other people's shoes, Google search raters' shoes and customers' shoes. And be super critical about this because I think that, especially with AI content, a lot of it's just going to start getting regurgitated and you have these summaries and things like that. So if you're not adding something new and different, I, I just think that it's not helpful or it's not providing high value. And that could be also in the form, uh, not just written content, obviously. I think that a lot of people think of content as in words, but you've got audio got images, you've got video, you know, a number of different ways you can do that. I totally agree. There are so many ways we can make our content uniquely helpful as you described. And I think creating uniquely helpful content is important for ranking in search, but it probably also has like an impact on the end of the funnel and conversions. Um, because if you're giving that person who's coming to your website a very helpful experience, they probably trust you more and want to do business with you. Would you say that in theory, creating uniquely helpful content also could impact like the end of the conversion cycle too? I think across all the touch points, absolutely. If you're looking at something that you feel has little value, you're probably going to leave that page. Or like you said, at least distrust it, even if subconsciously. So I think that you're right on the money there, Nate. It's across the funnel and people have to trust you as a business and how you present yourself as a business through your content is one way that you gain their trust. I've said it on this podcast before that traffic does not necessarily equal dollars. Sometimes it does, but for a lot of us, it doesn't. And I know you and I have talked recently about how driving traffic is one thing and driving SEO towards business objectives is another. And I know you have a few interesting 
opinions and perspectives here. How do you think about SEO in relation to business objectives broadly? My perspective is that aligning the bottom line for what the org objectives are in marketing, those really have to drive, you know, whatever it is, but SEO specifically. And if you're not able to connect those to some really truly measurable thing, like say profit, and that would be ideal, which is challenging, but backing up from there to other KPIs that you can measure, I, I think that that's really what you have to be doing. And if you're not doing that, you're not sharing that with your SEO team, how do they know that what they're doing is going to align with what you're trying to do as a company? I do see misalignment on that quite a bit. Sometimes there's a privacy issue. They don't want to share that, especially like an agency or, you know, larger organizations. I think that, you know, they have a harder time communicating these things internally, or perhaps they just don't want to share certain profit metrics with certain teams. And I know a lot of your clients are in the travel niche. How does the work of a, an SEO or a digital marketer change for companies in the travel space? First, what's really unique about travel, I wouldn't say it's the only space, but travel is highly competitive. There's a lot of brands that are owned by one company. And so I kind of compare that to if you're at the grocery store and you're looking at say sliced cheese on the wall, they're owned by, I don't know what it is, five companies, but there's maybe like 30 different brands. So in SERP, now you're competing essentially with one company, but they have a lot more of what I call shelf space. So you might see Expedia, Hotels.com, and others that are owned by Expedia in there. And then the, another company is Booking.com, which owns is owned by Booking Holdings, but they have Agoda and there's some other brands within there. So getting on that front page of the SERP is really difficult because you're playing against some really powerful competitors that have been around for a long time with big budgets. The other part of that is that depending on your search, you're kind of competing with Google as well, because if you do a search for say hotels in Las Vegas, you know, they're going to show you the map pack. And within that, they also have the ability for checking rates and things like that. So there's a lot of real estate that's been taken up over time. It didn't used to be that way, but that is one big challenge. I think the other one is attribution. With travel, most people, like if you're planning a vacation, you're going to look at a number of destinations that you might go to. You're going to look at the cost of airfare. You're going to, you're going to do a lot of research in this thing. Maybe similar to say buying a car, right? You don't just go out and say, I want the red that, right? You know, so attribution is very difficult there. And then of course, you know, my SEO favorite thing to say is it depends. And, you know, the context there is, what type of travel entity are you? Are you a, a tour operator? Are you a, a niche OTA? Are you a large OTA? You know, are you an airline? Are you what we call in the industry DMO, which is destination marketing organization? So that would be say like when we went to Brighton, San Diego has one and they're, it's a government or somehow associated entity that is in charge of promoting that destination. And so they also have to be on these digital channels and they're competing, if you will, for attention, but maybe, you know, they don't want to compete directly. They're not selling a product in the same way, but they might be competing with you on SERPs for things like what to do in San Diego. And I know it's not as much of an SEO question, but if you're a local tour operator in San Diego, how important is it to get included on all of those other 
websites, for example, like San Diego.com, where they have lists of things you can do or Expedia, where someone might be able to book my local tour directly on that platform. Is that really important for the local operators in the travel space to get included onto those other sites as well? My perspective is yes. So you can obviously fight for your own slot and search and you can pay for your own ads, but these other sites, you know, the OTAs, online travel agencies like Expedia, Viator would be a, one for, uh, say, a tour operator. They do a lot of that for you. Now, you're going to pay a commission, but if you can be a part of multiple search positions, I think it's a lot better than just fighting for your own. Now, it comes with some things to consider when you're doing that because obviously you're paying a commission. But especially if you're just getting started from a small business perspective, I think that it's just another marketing channel. And yeah, it happens to be a website just like yours, but they already have a following. You know, they're, they're going to rank a lot quicker than you will. Are you ever worried about cannibalization? Like a searcher comes to your site, they learn about your great tour and then they end up booking it on Expedia and you having to pay a commission or do you just eat the commission as a cost of doing business? That's a good question. I think that getting something is better than getting nothing. The cannibalization of that is a challenge. And especially for smaller companies, they usually don't have people that can analyze this. And so they may be doing stuff where that they don't need to. They might have already built their brand and they're doing pretty well. They could scale back on that. And there's some things that you can do around that as far as managing what inventory you syndicate out and what you you know have yourself. So maybe it's a type of tour. There's also a branding component showing up on these sites that, you know, if, if you're Nate San Diego Tours, nobody knows who you are and you get out on Viator, San Diego.com, Expedia, you start having some credibility right there. And I think it also kind of works in an opposite way where that branding, especially if it's something that someone has a question about, they might want to contact you directly because they can't ask those questions on that platform. So I guess my answer there is it's complicated. Uh, there are things that you can do to try to understand that. And from a very simplistic point of view, you just scale back what inventory you're putting out there and see what that does to your direct bookings. Do your direct bookings go up or are your direct bookings so full that it doesn't make sense to pull these uh, to syndicate to somebody else? Nate's tours are fantastic. We've got a local fishing tour in San Diego. It's one of the best. How the heck can I compete? in the SERPs if I'm a local operator against sites like Expedia, TripAdvisor? Is it impossible for a local operator to compete? And if not, how do you do it? I actually think that local operators have an advantage because TripAdvisor can't get into the map pack and you can't. So local search is a great way to get out there um, from an organic perspective. There's also now the Google guarantee. I don't know if you've seen those in ads. So there's a vetting process and there is, you have to pay for that, take some time. And only certain categories of local business can show up in there. But it puts you above the map pack and there's usually two. And then there's this green thing that says Google guaranteed and they check like your insurance and background checks and, and things like that. So there's an opportunity. It's not organic, but that is something that, you know, you don't have a, as a larger company, you don't have that, those opportunities. So I think that you have 
at this point anyway, there's some opportunities you can capitalize on. Going back to SGE, if search results are now served by SGE placements, and I know with OpenAI, the data is as fresh as I think 2021. If I've just started my tour company today, would it then be impossible for me to get placed into an SGE instant answer when someone is searching for the best fishing guides in San Diego? Well, I don't know. You know, Nate, I hear you have a pretty good reputation for being the best fishing guide in San Diego. So I think that I'd like to hope that you have a good chance at that. What's hard to know is what is getting pulled into SGE results and for which types of queries. I remember seeing some data where it was like one, two, and then like randomly an average, something that would rank 49 in organic was getting showed in there. Sometimes it's nine. So I don't really have a read on that. I don't know that anybody does really at this point. If they do, please like hit me on LinkedIn. I'd love to buy whatever that information is. I think one thing that is changing or has changed is that Google has devalued links because they realize that the old players have an inherent advantage. They have a lot more links. So you're never going to be able to overcome that without a huge budget. So I think that local brand mentions you know, being present in local search, you know, they're, they're focusing a lot more on these hyper-local types of things to provide results for you, whether it's in SGE or in, you know, regular SERPs and especially in the local map pack. So I think you have a chance. I was going to ask you, how important are backlinks? It sounds like you think they're less important than maybe they used to be. One thing that happens in the SEO world is Google says something and then everyone's like, Google said this, right? And you see a hyper-focus on that. From a lot. And I think that over time now we've seen that let's take that in context. So are they important? Absolutely. It's still a vote for you. But if I look at what Google is trying to do, which is build search engine for people, people don't talk with signs or like I don't have like a, a rope tethered says, you know, Nate's uh, fishing tours is awesome. And I'm not like dragging that around behind me, but I'm going to tell my friends. So I think what's becoming more important than links is you're getting those organic mentions, whether it's in social, you know, just wherever forums, things like that, wherever that brand is being mentioned, that's providing a lot of signal to Google as well. So it sounds like you think that Google has gotten a lot better at identifying off-page signals that are not backlinks. Would that be accurate? When you say off-page, you mean like off somebody else's page? Off my own page. So for example, I've got this fantastic TikTok channel for Nate's Fishing Guides in San Diego, and my followers love me. Do you think Google can understand that I'm popular on TikTok and maybe I'll have a positive impact then on like the performance of my brand and site and search? I do think so. From any social channel, we've seen that with Twitter, you know, maybe the number of followers, number of retweets, things like that. And I think as uh, natural language processing gets better, the context of that will also be relevant. So if someone's saying something bad repeatedly, there was this, I forget exactly what it was, but there was, uh, it was like a pizza shop or something like that. And all they had was horrible, horrible reviews and mentions. And it was ranking really well just because there was a lot of them and that changed. So I think that that is going to continue to happen where, you know, the, the, the sentiment behind how people are talking about you and especially third party reviews, you know, not stuff that's on your site, 
uh, Google is now working on removing like just the star reviews, as far as I understand, in local search. So you can't, which could be really easily manipulated by going and getting a whole bunch of people to just give you like five star reviews, but not actually give any kind of context of that review. I think also if you look at like the schema around these entities in different places, if you are a local fishing operator, fishing guide, then, you know, if you're on Viator and you have a lot of good reviews there, you're on Expedia, you have a lot of good reviews there. We see that already. If you look at on local SERPs, they'll show you from around the web is kind of what they they have that there. And then they show like, you know, what is the discussion around this entity? So I, I do think that that's correct. And if it's okay with you, I would love to ask you a few rapid fire questions in our lightning round. Does that sound good? That does. As far as those 70 websites go, I know you mentioned early in your career, there was this portfolio of 70 websites that you operated. Do any of them still exist and drive traffic? The last I looked at, entire brand got taken down. So it was uh, like a secondary brand for a larger company. What are one or two things that SEOs do each day or each week that are just a total waste of time? Total waste of time. I think one of the big things is chasing algorithms and like really trying to understand like what some little nuance is. I think that depending on which role of SEO you have, you really just got to stay prioritized on that role. And maybe this equates to worrying about the future. Yeah, you got to pay attention to it. But if you're sitting there looking at, you know, what might be coming next the whole time, you're basically wasting your time from what you could be doing now. In the future, will you have to pivot? Probably. I mean, we've seen that over 20 years. That's one thing that they probably should just kind of ease off on. Don't get it so like buried in all this data unless your job is hyper-focused to be on that. So it depends on the team, I think. Should we be using AI-generated content on positional.com? So I think it depends. Generated content has been trained on human content that's been written. So it's basically creating summaries, right? And yeah, it's wording them differently. It's using different voices, things like that. And going back to that point, which Mike Haney brought up, what value are you adding to the internet? So if AI is just adding summaries, it's not super valuable. Also question what's going to happen in the future if sources start blocking that training, which I think a lot of sites are now. How will that generative content struggle to move forward and provide anything unique? So I think that the application of AI, my perspective in content, is to improve efficiency. So as an example, I don't like writing from scratch. I just kind of have a block around it. It's not something that I enjoy. So it helps me break that block. I can start this content. And then for whatever reason, my mind thinks that editing that is just fine, even if I'm editing the whole thing, right? So I would say that if you have the right application of AI content for your site, it's fine. And I think that seems to be the consensus, again, by most SEOs is utilize AI for efficiency, but provide your own experience, your own expertise, you know, create some authority there. And if you don't have that, I think that maybe it'll work for a little bit, but I don't think that that's the long-term game of what Google is trying to find from your site as you know as far as being authoritative and adding to the internet we talked a lot about 1998 and google search 
when it first came out and what search looked like in the five to 10 years after that, that was 25 years ago. In 25 years from now, are we still going to be using Google search? In 25 years? Yep. Who knows if Google even exists? I mean, they've been around for a while, but they started from nothing, right? So we might have something there. I think that they'll probably exist. You know, they're a large enough company that they're there. That was kind of a tongue-in-cheek comment. Yahoo is still around, but they've changed. You know, there's no Yahoo search in the same respect. It's there, but they're not powering it. They're more of a media company now. So I'm not going to put a time frame on it, but my perspective on the future of search is finding where your demand is. You know, that could be relevant groups on Slack for B2B or LinkedIn, forums like say Reddit, just video platforms, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, things like that. There's search that's being performed there. It's not just all on, you know, Google. So I think that that's going to change, especially with, you know, the more we get personalized with AI and stuff like that. Another perspective I have on this is that Google tried to build a social ecosystem like Google Plus. I'm not sure if you remember that, but that really kind of didn't work, right? It took them a long time to pull the plug. But everything that I've seen Google doing is they are trying to build an ecosystem. And so I think that, you know, say YouTube, for example, and SGE and other things like the the local results and hotels, flights, all those things, that's all part of Google's ecosystem. So I think that they're continually trying to build that out and trying to get you to be in their ecosystem. I'm not sure if that answered your question completely, but I I do think that we're just going to see a change. And I think it's going to be more about relationships and being somewhere where people are looking for what you have to offer, especially for B2B. No, I love that. You totally answered the question. And as a final question in this lightning round, I'd be curious to get your stance on competition. Is SEO the most competitive it's ever been? Absolutely. And so part of that is just by the expansion of the number of sites that are out there, changes that are happening. There's less real estate for organic search on Google. And that's going to continue, right? You know, as more people create more content. And then I think we're also competing with Google. I think that a lot of people don't look at it that way, maybe. But, you know, they're facilitating transactions. And some of those are free transactions. Some of them are commission-based. Some of them are cost-per-click-based. But they're not ads at the top of the page. And some people would probably say, well, you know, okay, that's not fair. You know, why should we compete with Google? Things like that. And my perspective is they're a business. They're out to compete. They're out to make money. You know, if I own Google, that's what I would try to do. I would try to get my hands in every single touch point possible. Again, going back to is that fair? Well, it's their playing field at the moment. And one thing that someone said to me in relation to stock trading was don't play the market you want to see, play the market that's in front of you. So I think that you really have to just kind of understand what that looks like and how it's changing. And if you sit there and say, well, it's not fair, you know, blah, 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 that's not going to help you. You just have to learn how to play within the guidelines that currently exist. And that's a wrap. Mika, thank you so much for coming on the Optimize podcast. Right on, bro. This episode of the Optimize Podcast is brought to you by a special sponsor. If you're anything like me, you've probably got a lot of content that's not very well optimized and it can be a total pain in your butt to optimize it and ultimately get it to rank better in search. And that's what positional 
does. Positional has an incredible tool set for everything from content optimization to technical SEO and planning your editorial calendar. And if you don't know by now, I'm one of the co-founders of Positional and I'd love for you to check it out. 